morning. We're going to get into our study of Mark's gospel, but before we do that, we want to take care of some church business for the next couple minutes. And um, one of the things that we want to do, you recall at the beginning of the year, we've been praying about adding to the pastoral staff here at Calvary Chapel and uh, with a need for, uh, you know, somebody full-time with the youth and then also with Jim's desire to to move out of leading worship uh, here at Calvary Chapel eventually. He's not going anywhere, if you're wondering. Um, he's still my assistant pastor, uh, but he's been my worship leader for 14 years. And so we just took that to prayer, and uh, we just wanted uh, to, the Lord to just um, bring us somebody that, uh, that we felt would uh, really be a blessing to us here at Calvary <coughs> Chapel and be added to that staff, and the Lord has done that. And uh, so he has brought us David uh, Corona, who uh, has been here for the last couple of weeks. So we want to bring him up, and we want to pray for him and for his family. And so David and Miley, come on up. So Zoe in the nursery. Okay, all right. So come on up, and if some of the elders would come up, we want to pray for uh, Pastor David, and uh, we just want to lay hands on him and uh, and just pray for the ministry that he has here to the youth um, and to worship. And we're excited that you guys are here. I do have a verse that the Lord has given to me to give to you this morning. And it's this, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 through 16. And Paul's writing to young Timothy and giving him instructions. And I want to read the same thing to you, David, this morning. It says, Let no one despise your youth, but you be an example to the believers in word in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So if you would, Calvary Chapel, if you would stand with us, if you would like, and we're going to lay hands on David, and we just want to ordain him as a pastor here at Calvary Chapel Greeley. We want to welcome him, and I would ask that as we pray that you would continue to pray for him and for his family. And so, Father, we come and we lay hands on David, and we, Lord, um, thank you so much that you've brought him here and his family and and my Lee and Zoe and and Lord the, the, the uh, a new baby that will be on the way here in a couple months Father we pray for David that Lord that the ministry that you've given to him and called him to that Lord that you would equip him Lord that you would anoint him and Lord that he would be an example to those he's ministering to and to this fellowship in word and in conduct, Lord, in faith, in love, and in purity. Lord, that he would be a man of your word, a man of truth, rightly dividing the word of truth, being a diligent worker, to, Lord, be grounded in your word and to give that to those that he ministers to. I pray that you would equip him, Lord, and that you would help him to serve and love the kids that he's going to be ministering to that they would grow and they would know that um, David is there, Pastor David, to, to minister to them and to love them. Lord, we pray that um, as he leads worship, that truly it would be worshipful 
And Lord, that uh, you would give him wisdom and help him to grow in all these areas. And Lord, we are so thankful that uh, he has a love for you and his family. I pray for his family. I pray for my Lee that you would bless her. And Lord, again, the baby that's inside of her would grow to be healthy and they would have another healthy child. We lift up Zoe to you that you would bless her and she would continue to grow into a young girl just knowing you and loving her. So we thank you for this family. We thank you that we have opportunity to be able to bring Pastor David on and to, to minister and to help out with the duties as we see the church growing. But Lord, more than anything, that his ministry would bring glory and honor to you, that you would humble him, and Lord, that uh, he would have one desire, and that is to exalt you and to walk in your ways, and Lord, to, to minister in a way that pleases you. And Father, I pray that he would receive the love of this fellowship, that Lord, as he's new and his family is new to a new area, that they would know that they are loved here and that you love them. And Lord, that we would encourage him and, and Lord, this fellowship would be committed to pray for him as well as all the leadership here. Mm -hmm. So Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we can take this time to, Lord, just bless him and, and pray for him, lay hands on him. So Lord, fill him with your spirit right now and do a marvelous work. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you, Dave. All right. You may be seated. And we're going to continue our study in Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, this morning. We've been going through Mark's Gospel on Sunday morning, if you're new with this. And so we happen to find ourselves in chapter 11. We're going to continue our verse by verse study in Mark. Chapter 11, we'll begin reading at verse 1. The 11th chapter of Mark, second book in the New Testament, if you'll turn there. And of course, as we've been over the last couple of weeks seeing and reading, going through this, this wonderful gospel account, we have seen that Jesus is now headed towards Jerusalem. And as we have journeyed on Sunday morning, we have seen Jesus, as he's making his way to the holy city, Jerusalem, he has told his disciples, as we read in the previous chapter, that we're going to go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, but he's going to rise again on the third days. And as we have seen, that was the third time that Jesus told his disciples that he was going to be handed over to be crucified, and he was going to rise again on the third day. They don't fully understand what all the implications of that is at this time. And they would be confused, clear up until the night that Jesus would be arrested and then taken off where he would go on a series of trials. And they wouldn't come to full understanding until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as Jesus is nearing Jerusalem, where these things will take place, we saw last week that Jesus, he's traveling, he, he's getting closer to the city, he's with his disciples, there's a great multitude that has passed through um, Jericho with Jesus. Uh, in Jericho, we saw as we ended last week that Jesus heals Bartimaeus, the one who was blind, and Bartimaeus begins to follow after the Lord in gladness. So now they make that climb, it's a steep climb from Jericho, which is way below sea level near the Dead Sea, about 1,200 feet below sea level, to Jerusalem, which is about 800 feet 
above sea level. So it's a steep climb, 20-mile journey. And now chapter 11, we read that now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And so let's pray. Father, we ask right now that we would just, just open our hearts and our ears to you to receive what it is, that, what you have to say to us. And Lord, it's a chapter that perhaps we're familiar with, but Lord, I pray that we would make application, consider these things once again, what it means for us today. And Lord, that we would be strengthened and encouraged and blessed. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So as we open up chapter 11 here, we're going to be looking at the last week of our Lord as he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He does it as he goes from the Mount of Olives and he rides into the city and then a few days later, we're going to see in this last week of Jesus that he's going to be rejected by the people. They're going to cry out, crucify him, crucify him, away with him. We will not have this man rule over us. So looking at the last few days of our Lord before his crucifixion, here we see on that Sunday before he's crucified, he draws near Jerusalem. Now remember that there are many, many travelers who would be coming into the holy city of Jerusalem at this point because it is the time of the Passover. The city would be very, very crowded from people coming to celebrate that major feast uh, called Passover where they would sacrifice the Passover lambs. And with the Passover celebration taking place, pilgrims coming in from all over the nation, from all over other areas of the world, from Asia Minor, from Africa, the city being very crowded. And with the Romans in power at this time, there would be an increase in the number of soldiers that would be posted to make sure that if there is any attempt of an uprising, of a rebellion by the Jews, that it would be immediately stopped and suppressed. The governor of the region is Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate, who would be the one responsible for the governmental authority for that area for Rome, would come from his residence there in Caesarea, Caesarea there on the coast, to Jerusalem. He would travel to be close by in case of an urgent situation that might come up. And so Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that there would be ten times the normal number of soldiers in the city at this time, the time of the Passover feast. There would be troops everywhere and people, again, crowding into the city, ready to celebrate this feast. And now we see Jesus. He is drawing near Jerusalem, and he first would pass through Bethpage, which means the house of dates, and then Bethany on the east side of the Mount of Olives. It's only about three miles from Jerusalem. It was a small village. It was also known in John's gospel as the town of Mary. So Bethany means the house of figs. So Jesus goes through these two small villages and he peeks at the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is just directly east of Jerusalem. And there, when you were on the Mount of Olives, as you came up from Jericho, you climbed and you climbed and you climbed, and you came to the Mount of Olives, and all of a sudden, you, as you peeked on that mount, you could look to the west, and you can see the golden city of Jerusalem. And you would be looking directly at the eastern gate. You would be looking at the magnificent temple. The reason that Jerusalem was called the golden city was because of the Jerusalem stones that were mined around that area there in 
in the hillsides of Jerusalem. They're still mined today. And those stones, which are golden in color, were used to build the homes and other structures in Jerusalem. And particularly when it was dusk or when it was dawn, that golden color would just kind of radiate out. It would really stand out. But also, as you were look, looking down at Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, you would be looking at that temple, which was covered by gold. And you see, the temple at that time was remodeled by Herod the Great. And it was a magnificent structure. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. And it was expanded, the temple, and the quarters uh, that were alongside the temple. And it was something that was very magnificent. Matter of fact, Josephus writing that when the sun would come up in the morning, if you were on the Mount of Olives, that you could not directly look at the temple because of the sunlight reflecting off the gold that was overlaying the temple. And it would be too brilliant for you to look at it directly. So Jesus, being at the top of the Mount of Olives, we read it once again, he sent two of his disciples, verse 2, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord had need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So our Lord gives two of his disciples some instructions, very specific instructions. You go get a colt, and you will find that colt tied up, and we will see that Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem that is down the Mount of Olives, which is really actually a hill, through the Kidron Valley and into the city of Jerusalem. He would be fulfilling the prophecies of Zechariah chapter 9. Now, Jesus said, get that colt to his two disciples, and no one has written on it. And if anyone says, verse 3, why are you taking this colt? You tell them that the Lord has need of him. And I really like that little phrase. I, I take note of it. The Lord has need of him. I think it's worth taking note of it this morning because it amazes me that the Lord would have need of anything. And when you really think about it, we know that our Lord, he was very poor. He didn't have material possessions, just the clothes on his back. There was one who came to him in the gospel accounts that said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to that one, really? Because foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So he who was rich became poor for our sake. It's interesting to think that the manger that he laid in when he was born it wasn't his own. And the tomb, the burial tomb that he'll be laid in when he is crucified, isn't his own. So our Lord being in a position of poverty, that he might partner with you and with me in what he is doing. He would say to Peter at the Sea of Galilee, Peter, I need to borrow your boat so I can preach. He would say to the little boy, I need your fishes and loaves so I can feed. He would say to Joseph, I need your tomb that I might resurrect. The Lord has chosen to say to you and to me, I have need of you. And, and that's wonderful to me. It's glorious. He didn't have to do it that way. But he is determined to use people like you, like me. And the fact that he used this donkey, he had need of a donkey to make his triumphal entry, it's kind of good news to me as well. Because we know the characteristics of a donkey. They're hard-headed. 
They're stubborn. They're not very smart. But the Lord used this particular donkey on this day to accomplish his purpose. And I'll speak for myself. Because I know that I can have those characteristics that a donkey has. Stubborn, just hard-headed, not very smart. But when Jesus sat on that little colt, that donkey yielded quietly, obediently. Jesus didn't go riding into the city with this young donkey bucking all the way. It was very responsive, even though it had never been ridden. And you see, when I yield my life to him, even though I may have those characteristics of just being stubborn and whatever it might be. But if I say, Lord, I truly come to you and I humble my heart. Lord, you sit upon the throne of my heart. You know what's going to happen when any of us say that? Great things are going to happen. And the Lord desires to use this in a powerful way to bring glory and honor to him. You guys go find this colt. And you tell the owner that the Lord has need of him, of that donkey. And it was a great day in that donkey's life. But here's the thing as we consider this text that we just read. Before he was used, before he was ridden, he had to be loose, verse 2. You're going to find that colt. It's going to be one that's tied up. You loose it and bring him to me. You see that colt tied up. Loose him. Bring him here. And that's what happens with you and me when we gather with the body of Christ, when we gather with other brothers and sisters in the Lord to be encouraged and blessed, to be prayed for, to study God's word. I hope that has taken place here at Calvary Chapel this morning. I hope it takes place when we gather on Wednesday nights and other times, that we end up being loose. What do you mean by that? You see, we are saved, but so oftentimes as Christians, we end up being all bound up because of the difficulties and the trials and the confusion and the fears and, and the circumstances that we face. And I come into this place. And I hear the word, and I worship in spirit and truth. I receive prayer from another brother or sister. I learn the promises of God, and the promise of his presence is given to me. And I find that I'm being loosed. My walk is getting, that is, freer and freer. Because I'm trusting in him. I'm resting in his love. It would be David that would write in Psalm 116, O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. It will call upon the name of the Lord. We are freed as we walk with the Lord because we have truth. And Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. But notice that yes, the donkey was written, that the Lord desires to use that donkey, just as he desires to use you and me, but it had to be released first. That process happens with us as we study, as we pray, as we worship, as we fellowship with other believers. But before that, there's an interesting verse in the Scriptures, Exodus 13, 13. You might want to jot it down. It tells us that a donkey had to be redeemed. Interesting. Whenever a donkey was born, Exodus chapter 13, verse 13 tells us that before that donkey could live, that a lamb had to die. A lamb had to be sacrificed so that that donkey could live. And if there was not a sacrifice of a lamb, then the donkey's neck had to be broken according to Exodus chapter 13, verse 13. You see, the Lord wants to use us, first release us, but before all that can happen, he must redeem us. And he has done that, hasn't he? 
Because after he writes down this mount, the Mount of Olives, in a few days he's going to walk up another mount called Mount Calvary, where the Lamb of God died for this donkey. Listen, the Lord wants to use you. He has need of you. And he can do that as he works in your life, as you know truth, as you're freed up in him, as, as you are able to live for him. Because you've been redeemed. You've come to Jesus Christ by faith, recognizing who he is and what he has done for you. And he wants to use you to reach those loved ones that don't know him and the neighbors that live next to you and those co-workers that are working alongside of you, those who go to school with you. He has chosen to place himself in that position of partnering with you. And I like that that you may bring glory and honor to the Lord and bring people to Jesus Christ as you tell them the good news of the gospel. So you go get that colt, and, and you go get him and loose him and bring him here. Verse 4, so they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing, loosing the colt? And they spoke to them, just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. And then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. So again, Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. Now, interesting, in Israel at this time, there was a question among the religious leaders and how exactly the Messiah would come. And they had that question based on the Old Testament readings. First, according to Zechariah 9, that we just read that verse, Messiah would come lowly, humbly, riding on a colt, or would he come as described to us in Daniel chapter 7, in glory and in conquering? And so the teachers of the day had reconciled this, concluded that perhaps that what was going to happen is that the Messiah, he would come humbly to an unworthy Israel. He would come in glory and power to a worthy Israel. And since the religious leaders considered Israel to be worthy, they were looking for the triumphal conquering messiah that would overthrow rome and set up the kingdom so when jesus came riding on a donkey they ended up rejecting him we know from the other gospels that the pharisees told jesus stop this you can't do this tell your disciples to stop so jesus coming into jerusalem not on a white stallion like a conquering general would but humbly on a colt and it's the only time that Jesus made arrangements in which he would be praised and worshipped publicly. You remember as we've gone through this gospel that the people, especially up in the Galilee region, when he was working miracles, they wanted to crown him as king and Jesus dismissed the crowds. He would say, it's not my time. The hour has not come. But on this day, the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming Messiah would be fulfilled. So Jesus makes arrangements on this particular day. So Jesus riding that colt, that donkey, 
from the top of the Mount of Olives. He's making his way down the mount. Verse 8, And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut, cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In verse 11, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So the triumphal entry of Jesus into <coughs> Jerusalem, fulfilling, as we have mentioned, Zechariah chapter 9, but also he would fulfill Daniel chapter 9, as we've talked about in our Daniel study. That Messiah would come. When the command comes to rebuild and restore Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah, the prince, Daniel chapter 9, is going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 69 weeks, or 69 periods of seven years, which equals 483 years. We know from Nehemiah chapter 2 that that decree came out, or to Xerxes gave the command to Nehemiah to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. And Nehemiah would come back and begin to restore the city, building the walls around the city. So Artaxerxes, given that command, historians tell us as they make the calculations, it was made on March 14, 445 B.C. So you can count that date, making the necessary corrections for calendar errors, and as the British Royal Observatory has made the calculations, if you count... From that time, March 14, 445 B.C., 483 years, you come to April 6, 32 A.D. Jesus rode into Jerusalem exactly 483 years later. It's an amazing, incredible prophecy given by Daniel the prophet, fulfilled to the day. So I would refer you back to our study of Daniel chapter 9 for a detailed study on what is called Daniel's 70 weeks. It's very fascinating. There are those critics, there are those skeptics concerning our Lord that will say if Jesus arranged this and worked it all out, then he or anybody else could have just, you know, simply said, hmm, the Messiah rides in on a donkey into Jerusalem. Get me a donkey and I'll ride in to Jerusalem on a donkey and I'll say that I'm the Messiah. And I'll say that I just fulfilled Zechariah chapter 9. Well, there were some factors involved that were beyond his control, things that he could not arrange. For example, the response of the crowd. As he came into the city, when Jesus came riding down the slopes of the Mount of Olives, the crowd would um, cry out to him, crying out forth that psalm that was definitely, definitely a prophetic psalm of the Messiah, quoting Psalm 118. It was the first time that Jesus had allowed any public proclamation of, of himself as Messiah. Jesus couldn't control the response of the Pharisees as they knew that the people were crying out that messianic psalm. They stood up and they said, you've got to stop, this is blasphemous. It would be the very day, as I've mentioned, that the prophecy of the coming Messiah was to be fulfilled according to Daniel chapter 9. That's why when the Pharisees told Jesus and his disciples to stop, don't be saying this, don't be yelling out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That Jesus' response to them was that I'll tell you the truth, that if these were to keep quiet, the very stones are going to cry out. Why? <clears throat> because this is the day. 483 years after the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem was given. 
Now remember, when the Jews were taken into captivity by the Babylonians, it first began in 605 B.C., but eventually Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and Solomon's temple in 586 B.C. So the command given by Artaxerxes, the restore and rebuild Jerusalem 483 years later, or 173,880 days later, here comes Messiah riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, fulfilling the, all of the Old Testament prophecies. And that's why Luke records in his account of the triumphal entry that as Jesus drew near the city, he began to, to weep over it. And Jesus would weep, saying, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know the time of your visitation. It's a very interesting scene here. The crowds are rejoicing. They're cheering, but Jesus is weeping for a couple reasons. Because he knew that in the cries of the crowd saying, Hosanna, which means save now, this is the time. You see, they weren't talking about personal salvation, but they were looking for Jesus to lead a revolt against the dreaded Romans. They, they were hoping at this time that Jesus would come along and overthrow the Romans politically, militarily, and nationally. And when they realize that he is not going to do that, that when they realize that he came saying that I didn't come to be served, but to be the servant of all, that he came with a different agenda than a national one, than a material one, the crowd is going to cry away with him, crucify him. We don't want him ruling over us. He's not our king. Because they were looking for a political, material deliverance and this man's talking about repenting? This man's talking about denying yourself? This man's talking about dying and going to a cross? And now you need to pick up your cross and follow after me? There's no way. We need to ask ourselves, all of us, a question this morning. Am I, am you, are we really, are we really interested in the cross are we really interested in the things that we've been talking about over the last couple weeks about how to be great in the kingdom about dying to self and if we want to be first then we must be last and if you really want to be great in the kingdom be the servant of all about being a man or a woman of humility are we really interested in living and thinking and doing the things that the Lord has told us to pick up our cross and to follow after him at all cost? Or do we cry, Hosanna, save now. Save my political, my vocational, my material kingdom. Do it now, Lord. Do we miss it? Do we miss it? The people are waving palm branches and laying their clothes on the road. They were missing it. The real reason why he came was not to free them from Rome was to free them from sin, which was a greater need. So Jesus is weeping. He knew that in the crowd of people shouting praise, that there were the whispers of those saying he must die. And the Pharisees, as we have seen in our journey through this gospel, they're plotting to kill him. 
And here it is, the time of the Passover feast, with tens of thousands of lambs coming into the city to be sacrificed for Passover. Again, Josephus writes that the Romans, that they took account on how many sheep were sacrificed during the Passover because the religious leaders, they didn't want to count the people directly. And the reason they didn't want to count the people directly is we're going to see in our Wednesday night study in Second Samuel is David counted the people. And when David counted the people, there was a plague that went throughout the land. So the religious leaders were saying, please, don't count the people directly. So the Romans, what they did was they counted the sheep. And in one year, Josephus writes, around the time of Jesus, they counted, it was what his claim is, 256,000 sheep that were being sacrificed for Passover. That's a lot of sheep. And here is Jesus, the Lamb of God, the picture of the Passover Lamb. He knows what's going to happen. It's the whole reason why he came to the world, to die. He rides into the city, and when the Pharisees saw the crowds praising him, they knew that they were either going to have to crown him as king or crucify him for blasphemy. And the enemies of Jesus were determined to crucify him as a criminal. And Jesus descends down from that hill. And I imagine that everywhere that he looked, his heart was breaking. He says, you should have known the day of your visitation. All the prophecies, over 300 prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah. Don't you see that I'm fulfilling them? He would completely fulfill all of them when it came to the birth and the life and the ministry and the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He fulfilled every single one of them. You should have known that this is the day of your visitation, but you missed it. Their eyes were blinded. It was hidden from their eyes. Jesus said, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, I am the fulfillment of Zechariah 9. I am the fulfillment of Daniel 9. Right on schedule, right on time. Today is that day. And if the disciples and these people are silent, the very rocks and the very stones are going to cry out. And now your enemies are going to surround you and level you to the ground. They thought, well, we're going to show those Romans. But what would happen? Nearly 40 years after this event, 70 AD, Titus, the Roman general, brought in his armies. He began this prolonged siege against Jerusalem. The Jews shut the gates. They locked themselves in for many, many days. Titus and his troops surrounded the city. The people began to starve inside Jerusalem. They began to die by the thousands. And as Titus finally and his soldiers would break through and break through the walls and, and through the gates, the Romans frustrated because of the stubbornness of the Jews. The Roman soldiers ignored the orders given by Titus not to destroy that magnificent temple. And what happened was they set the temple on fire anyway. The fire was so hot that the gold began to melt down on the temple, and it set off a frenzy. The soldiers wanted the spoils. So they began to rip the temple apart to where not one stone was left upon another, just as Jesus prophesied. We're actually going to see some of those stones that they've excavated just recently when we go to Israel next week. The historian Josephus tells us that eventually the devastation would take the lives of 1.1 million Jews. Here is Jesus. They're cheering, they're celebrating. 
time of shouting and a loud voice, waving the palm branches, laying the clothes on the ground, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. But as they're celebrating, Jesus was seeing something else. He saw what it was that was coming. And he knew that in their hearts, and verse 11 tells us, that they would reject him, so he leaves. He goes out to Bethany with the twelve. He knows that in a few days he's going to go to the cross. So the next day, verse 12, when they had come out of Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again, as disciples heard it. So Jesus makes his entry into Jerusalem. That night goes back up the Mount of Olives to the town of Bethany, again about a three-mile walk, and he stays that night in Bethany. Isn't it interesting that you don't see recorded where Jesus ever spent the night in Jerusalem? He never spent the night in Jerusalem, God's holy city. So he leaves, he goes to Bethany, and the next day Jesus being hungry, as he's getting ready to walk back to Jerusalem, he sees a fig tree. There's no fruit. He curses it, and later on in the chapter, we're going to see that the tree is going to be dried up from the roots. And there have been a few you know, commentators that have said, well, the reason that Jesus curses fig tree is because he's really feeling the pressure now. So he curses the fig tree, kind of like he takes it out on the fig tree. He's going to go to the temple, and he's going to drive out the money changers, and so Jesus is just having a bad day here. And it's nerves and it's stress that he's feeling because he knows that things are going to be coming down here. But I think that we can learn from this paragraph. And I think that we need to really kind of think through what's being said here and consider the fig tree. It's, it's interesting, again, because it's the only miracle in the entire record of Jesus' ministry where he curses something. Condemnation comes upon it. He would curse this fig tree. And what has bothered some is that Jesus does this to the tree when Mark records to us that it was not the season for figs. So why would Jesus get mad at the tree and curse it? Well, let's explore it just a little bit more. And I think we can make application for us this morning. Something we need to know about fig trees is pretty general with any kind of fruit tree. The fig tree in Mark chapter 11 had leaves but no fruit. When figs begin to leaf out, there will be little tiny figs that will appear right alongside the leaves. So again, with this being April, the figs wouldn't really be ripe. They don't become ripe till summertime. But there is what is called the first ripe figs on the tree. If you go to Israel today at this time of the year, you will see those first ripe figs on the tree, and they will usually even precede the leaves, and then they will grow and they will mature in summertime. It's kind of like our fruit trees around here. We have a plum tree in our backyard. And our plum tree in April blossomed out, and so we know that we're going to have plums. And those blossoms would come out before the tree would even be fully leafed out, and now the blossoms are gone. The tree is fully leafed out. We know that there's going to be plums on that tree because of the blossoms. Well, it's kind of the same way with the figs. Jesus seeing this tree, it had leaves. He knew that there should be on there these first ripe figs on it, but seeing nothing but leaves, he knew that this tree was not going to have any fruit. The life of the tree had been spent producing leaves as foliage, so it looked like a healthy tree, but it really wasn't. It didn't produce any fruit 
So he cursed it. And the next day, is next week, we will see that it is Peter that's going to say, hey, it's withered up from the very root. So what does it mean for us? We know from the scriptures, from the Old Testament scriptures, that the fig tree represents the nation of Israel. Jesus would say, when you see the fig tree blossom, know that summer is near, just as you know that my coming is very near. And so the fig tree representing the, the nation of Israel. And we see that throughout Scripture consistently. And Jesus here is symbolically warning of God's judgment upon an unfruitful Israel. They thought that they had fruit, but they had rejected the Messiah. We will see that Jesus will say that you've made my father's house a den of thieves. The religious leaders thought that they were so righteous, but their hearts were corrupt. There was a lot of leaves. There was a lot of leaves. With the religious leaders with their long robes, saying their long prayers. They had this magnificent temple, people pouring into the city to celebrate the Passover. There was all the lambs, there was the temple worship, there was all this that was taking place, a lot of activity, a lot of religiousness, but there was truly no fruit. So what does it mean for you and for me this morning? It's very simple. God doesn't just want us to be all leaves. He wants fruit to be produced from our lives. And because this tree didn't have any leaves or any first ripe figs, it wasn't going to produce any fruit. And Jesus saw this tree for really what it was for. Now we may ask, what is fruit? What is fruit? Jesus came by this tree and he found no fruit. Does he find fruit in our lives or just a lot of leaves? So what is fruit? Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love. Romans chapter 1, John chapter 4 talks about the fruit of converting souls. Jesus said, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they're already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Philippians chapter 1 talks about being filled with the fruit of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus, that is desiring and living rightly, doing good things, which are pleasing to God. So living, thinking, and doing what he asks us to do, living for him. Romans chapter 15 talks about the fruit of giving financially. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us to offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So what is fruit? It's praising, it's living rightly before the Lord, doing good in his name. Not that others may give us a pat on the back, and applaud you and me, but to give glory and honor to him. It's giving, it's loving. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So that's fruit. This tree appeared to be healthy, but there is no fruit. I pray in our lives that we would truly produce fruit. You know, we can come to church, we can say the Christian terms, we can carry our Bibles, we can be religious, we can do all kinds of things, but are there really things in our lives that are taking place where we can see that fruit is taking place or just a bunch of leaves? So how do we produce fruit in our lives? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It comes by John chapter 15, abiding in Him, abiding in His Word, abiding in His love. There's no other way. 
You can't produce fruit in yourself. Jesus said in John chapter 15, without me you can do nothing. So you abide in him. Just as that branch of that tree is connected to the trunk, connected to the roots of you know, that tree that are down in the ground receiving those nutrients, there's going to be fruit. But you cut that branch off, it's not connected, and there's going to be no fruit. The roots begin to dry up. There's going to be no fruit. You stay connected to the Lord. You abide in Him, abide in His love and abide in His word. And that's my prayer that all of us, as the Lord passes by our lives, that there is truly fruit. Not just a bunch of leaves, not just a bunch of religiousness. Outwardly looking healthy, but inwardly, fruit is not being produced in our lives. But you abide in Christ and in his love and in his word, and fruit will be produced. Father, we thank you. As we stop here at this point in our study, and Lord, just it seems like these few minutes that we've had in your word, so much to learn from. That Lord, we want to have fruit in our lives. And we know that it only comes by, first of all, submitting our lives to you. That you died for us on Calvary's cross. And Father, I do pray that this morning, if there is anyone that happens to be here in the sanctuary or perhaps sitting out in a coffee shop that has truly never surrendered their life to you, that they would understand the gospel message. And that is the wages of sin is death. 